0: There's a new civil rights movement going on out there, in case you haven't been paying attention, in case you've been uh, living with your head in the sand for a while. But uh, it's unlike other immigration – well, there you go. It's unlike other civil rights movements. This is one led by uh, immigrants, by those who have uh, a lot at stake. Uh, As there seems to be a war on immigration, there is a new civil rights movement, being led by uh, those who uh, really have everything at stake. The new issue of the uh, International Socialist Review uh, takes a look at the birth of this new civil rights movement. And uh, here to talk about this new movement is uh, Justin Akers Chacon. He is the co-author, along with Mike Davis, of a forthcoming book, No One Is Illegal, He's also authored uh three different articles in the current issue of ISR. And uh here he is. Justin, are you with us this morning?
1: Yes. Thanks for having me, Joe.
0: Thanks for being here. How's uh, how's that for a tongue-tied uh introduction? But uh wow, you've really been working hard on on this issue. Uh you've got uh the, the new uh issue of International Socials Review is just wall to wall Justin and uh you've got this new book coming out. Um, I guess we should begin by by asking why all of this sudden interest, certainly not on your part you're you're you know responding to it, but where did this concern over immigration suddenly come from
1: well that's a good question um, and in fact it's not a new issue it's an issue that periodically bursts into the forefront of u s politics, especially during times of crisis so the the current emphasis on uh, immigrants and the potential problem or threat or however you know the various ways that they're spelling out the, uh, the problems with immigration are, are most recently influenced by the war you know the the idea that the u.s is engaged in a war on terrorism and that the border region itself has suddenly become this new the new theater um, the new theater for the war on terrorism and so it has a, a lot to do with a number of factors, but particularly in the post-9/11 U.S., it has to do with the increasing emphasis on this this war against terrorism, and um, it coincides with um, a longer-standing uh, sort of uh, focus on, by some groups on uh, on immigration. And so that these two things uh, coincide and produce this sudden hysteria. It's actually a hysteria that. Is really unfounded in many ways, but a hysteria that now tries to present this as the the newest threat to the United States.
0: But I'm a little concerned because, uh, you know, I know we Americans have have a short uh, attention span and we're we're not uh, too familiar with our own history. It's as if we've forgotten history that predates September 11, 2001, but what does the Mexican-American border have to do with terrorism?
1: Well, that's the the key question here: is that it doesn't it doesn't have anything to do with terrorism. Um, but nevertheless, we're having we're, we're having this constructed image sent to us on a daily basis through the media and through politicians and through organizations, uh, anti-immigrant organizations such as the Minutemen, that that this is really where the next terrorist threat is going to come from. Um, to date, there's been no, you know, no uh, evidence of, of any sort that. Uh, terrorists you know, people who are planning to do terrorist acts across the border. Uh, instead, I think this is more driven by uh, the idea that the United States is under attack. And under the, the current political circumstances in the U.S., where we have, you know, the war in Iraq, where we have uh, uh, really a stagnating economy for most working people in this country, um, you know, the war on terror is basically... Um, being presented as something that people should be worried about, and take their minds off of other more pressing issues, um, and so I think it's a it's a constructed image that that we have these sort of shady characters crossing the border, and in fact, you know, it's what it amounts to is the, the sort of merging of the potential terrorist with the the working the working person the 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 migrant crosser.
0: And I think your article in uh, the current issue of ISR, which I want to encourage listeners to check out, it should be available at uh, most newsstands, even even the big chains. Um, yeah. But uh, I think you do a really good job of showing the conflation of uh, kind of homeland security and a response to 9-11 with this sudden crackdown on uh, undocumented workers. I think you point out that just in, in early 2003, uh, for example, uh, terrorism charges were filed against twenty eight Latinos accused of possessing false social security cards in order to work at uh, the austin airport right. and, and uh, also, I think you have note statistics about kind of the increase of uh, of expenditures to militarize the uh, the the mexican American border. Could you talk about that a bit
1: right i mean in many cases, the laws are now being changed. Or expanded to basically include, um, you know, more mundane or more tri- trivial things that people are being charged with in terms of, uh, of immigrants, um, and more resources are being put into into border enforcement. Um, the uh, the current border policy, Operation Gatekeeper, right? Um, the the walling off of major crossing points has already costed, you know, uh, billions of dollars to maintain. Um, but really, this is about also about um, you know, the connection between militarizing the border and, um, the, you know, the war in general. I mean, this is now a situation where, you know, money is being spent on, on testing out new military equipment on the border. For instance, um, unmanned drones, which are now getting more uh, recognition in, um, in the Middle East and in the, in their use in um, conducting the, the war on terror, um, unmanned drones are now basically being tested to Monitor the movement of people across the border. Um, we see the National Guard troops being placed on the border. The introduction of more technology. Really, the the budget for homeland security in relating to the border is increasing exponentially. Um, you know, I think it's the yearly budget is now um, up to I think six point five or nearly seven billion dollars. Um, so it's big business. Um, it's big business to police the border, um, and defense industry defense contractors are the ones that are. Um, you know being able to, to make some profit off of this and in fact um, Halliburton um, most of your listeners will probably be familiar with halliburton sure. Americans are uh, familiar with Halliburton recently um, uh, got a lucrative contract to construct several immigrant uh, detention centers across the United States and so the the incorporation of the border and the militarization of the border you know as part of the uh, sort of war on terror has become, uh, you know, a profitable enterprise for
0: some defense contractors. I want to remind listeners they're in tune to KUCI Intervine eighty-eight point nine FM, KUCI.org dot org on the internet. We're speaking with Justin Akers Chacon. I hope I'm getting that close enough. Or, right. uh, and he is the author of just a, a whole bunch of uh, really, really insightful articles, taking a look at uh, the war on immigrants as well as the new civil rights movement. And uh, we're talking about the, the militarization of the border, the conflation of the war on terror with uh, concern over immigration. Now, this isn't really anything new. You kind of point out that uh, you know, concern over immigration really rears its head whenever uh, there is some kind of cultural scare. Could you take us back a bit and kind of give us some of the history of uh, the concern over uh, immigration?
1: That's that's uh, very important to look at because I think you know it's reified in our minds that we've always had these exclusive immigration policies and restrictive border walls. But in fact, uh, it wasn't really until the 1920s that there was any real attempt to to monitor or regulate the movement of Mexican uh, migrants. Um, but the the application of, of immigration restrictions tend historically to coincide with war and economic depression. And it's during those periods that we see uh, more focus given to immigration, more uh, emphasis on the problems of immigration, and the rise of anti-immigrant groups who gain more prominence um, during periods of, like I said, of, of economic stagnation, recession, depression, or uh, times of war, and so, for instance, um, the Mexican Mexican population has been singled out largely, you know, in terms of the regulation um, and, and deportation of this particular immigrant population, beginning in the 1920s. Um, for the most, for most of the period of the of the 20th century, up until the late 20s, uh, Mexican migration was largely unregulated um In fact, the first immigration compre- the comprehensive immigration that was applied in nineteen seventeen initially had excluded um, all most immigrants who were poor and who were unable to read and write in English um, you know and other factors. but Mexicans were purposefully excluded in nineteen eighteen after it became clear that by p- applying immigration restrictions to the southwest border would cut off most um, uh, Mexican workers, and this was something that created big problems for it. Uh, U.S. agriculture and other industries. So, in 1918, Mexicans were largely excluded um, from the stipulations that barred um, other immigrants. Um, so, all the way up until the ni- uh, late 1920s, Mexican migration was largely unfettered um, until the the advent of the Great Depression. Um, and it is that that period of time that Mexicans become um, targeted. Um, in this case, they were targeted um, on the basis that the the declining, the shrinking number of jobs in the U.S. should be um, reserved for or given to uh, American workers. And so between 1929 and 1931, um, the numbers, uh, estimates vary, but between a half a million and one and a half million uh, Mexican and Mexican-Americans were, were physically deported, um, forced to repatriate or physically deported in that period of time on the basis that they were taking American jobs. Um, and that included for, uh, estimates run as high as 40 percent, um uh, American citizens, because many of the children were born in the U.S., um, therefore making them U.S. citizens, and so they were scapegoated as a result of the Great Depression, um, and then this once this happened once again um, in, the, uh, in 1954, um, at the during the uh, you know the, the confluence in, confluence of the Cold War, the tail end of the uh, the war in Korea, um, and really you know a, a period of intense uh, an intensity in this country that once again looked for scapegoats, and this was again carried out um, mass deportations starting in 1954, um, called Operation Wetback.
0: And, and if I could just interject, because I sure. think that this really, you know, the word terrorism, I mean, is is used so frequently that it's it's lost all of its meaning. It's lost all of its. Uh, I don't know, maybe even its threat, and yet we could look and and see such a similar thing. You write uh, in the ISR, uh, in 1954, Senator Pat uh, McCarran declared that, quote, communist agents were among the wetbacks who crossed the Rio Grande, end quote. And I think that, again, the same way that the word communism was bantied around during the the Cold War. We could see the word, you know, terrorism and homeland security and the like bantied around today. And so I think that you do a really good job of illustrating kind of the the parallels in our history of, you know, when when we need a scapegoat, we just simply look south of the border.
1: Right. And I think you know, each each cycle, uh, anti-immigrant cycle, you know, relies on some sort of foreign threat. Um, as a means of justifying the the implementation of, you know, restrictive and and punitive laws. Um, You know, under the Reagan administration, um, at a time when Central America was destabilized by uh, military dictatorships and the revolutionary movements um, that were seeking to oust them, um, when masses of people were sent into migration to escape the violence, Reagan had characterized immigrants as subversive. Um, in 1992 um, and then in 1994, Bill Clinton, uh, under his presidency, um, justified uh, Operation Gatekeeper on the basis that this was going to help stop the drug traffickers, narco-trafficantes, right? The, um, so therefore, combining the element of, you know, the immigrant with the drug traffickers. So yeah, so every, every anti-immigrant cycle relies on characterizing or the merging of some sort of foreign threat with the the migrant worker. And and in all cases, these are simply untrue. Um, The people who cross the border are workers. Um, They, for the most part, are displaced workers, um, and they, you know, as most people realize, they come to the U.S. to work. Um, And in each of these cases where this foreign threat is is constructed, um, there's no evidence to back it up. In fact, um, you know, most evidence shows that the, over, you know, the, the majority the the absolute majority of people who cross the border are coming to work um, the, the rest are are children their children or their spouses
0: and and I, I'd want to explore that in uh, in just a couple of minutes but uh, I think you raise you know an important issue in in going over this history it you know you you talk about uh, the Clinton administration Reagan and it seems that the scapegoating of uh, immigrants is uh, is a bipartisan effort. Um, you know, you you mentioned how uh, one of John Kerry's uh, you know campaign speeches talked about how he would uh, get tougher at the border than the current uh, or the then uh, first term Bush administration. Um, in what ways? Is this crackdown or this uh, conflation of uh, terrorism and immigration a bipartisan effort?
1: Well, in fact, uh, I think in some ways the Democratic Party is more largely responsible for the current, uh, you know, emphasis on the border. Both parties, well, historically both parties have had very little difference. And depending on the administration, you might have a Republican who's... um, you know, more with more of an emphasis on immigration restriction, or a Democrat. It depends on the economic, um, political factors of any given administration, um, the environment of that you know, when that administration is in power. Um, in the current situation, uh, the current climate is has largely been constructed. I, I feel by, first of all, the fact that both parties have made their primary foreign policy objective, you know, winning the war on terror. Um, and the, the, the differences have have less to do with the the idea that we're fighting, you know, um, terrorism and more ha- having to do with the location of where that fight should be taking place. Um, and going back to the 2004 presidential election, this became very clear when the John Kerry ran his campaign on the basis that I would do a better job fighting the war on terror and the, the tact that he chose and the tact that the Democratic Party as a whole chose was to try to expose Bush as being weak on the war on terror by not doing enough to secure ports of entry into the United States And it was really the Democrats I feel that constructed helped to construct this idea that this the southwestern border um, or the borders in general but particularly the, the border with Mexico was a sieve in which terrorists You know, are are lining up to cross, Um, and so in the actual presidential debate, it was John Kerry who's on record saying, "We now have allegedly Middle Eastern people crossing the border, um, and you know, more or less, the president isn't doing anything anything about it." I will.
0: And is there any evidence that that's actually the case?
1: There's been no evidence of any. uh, There's been yeah, no evidence of anybody crossing the border. Nobody has been detained on charges of. Committing acts of terrorism or intention to commit
0: acts of terrorism, and yet North and and yet the U.S.-Canadian border, uh, listeners will recall, uh, in 1999 at the millennium, there there was an attempt for individuals to enter the United States from the Canadian-American border.
1: Right. the The focus here has been exclusively placed on the U.S.-Mexico border,
0: which which raises you know, the, the 10-ton elephant in the room that people don't really want to address. Uh, you know, in what ways, uh, if any, is all of this really a, a racist campaign?
1: Well, I think in many ways it's a racist campaign, and I think that this um, is demonstrated by the fact that the Minutemen, the anti-immigrant organization, the Minutemen, which I'm sure many of your listeners are familiar yes, with. Yes,
0: we're in Orange County here. We've, we've right. got them.
1: Well, the Minutemen essentially um, have been able to set the stage, or at least set the pace uh, and the tempo of the anti-immigration debate. Um, and when I say Minutemen, I'm, I include not just the the vigilantes who arm themselves and go on border patrols and um, you know their 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 pickets of the immigrant rights protests, but also their enablers and supporters in Congress. Um, you know, the immigrant right or they have an immigrant reform caucus in Congress, which I, I think includes up to 91 or 92 members of uh, the House who are open supporters of the Minutemen, who are en- enablers of, of the Minutemen, and, and in fact, many are Minutemen. Um, this this r- far-right wing, which combines elements of the, the far-right um, and cons- you know, conservative Republicans and people who have an ax to grind for various reasons against Mexican people in general, you know, have really captured the spotlight and have been enabled um, to sort of set the tone. Um, and I think it's it's because their interests, you know, what their goals are, which is to stop immigration, or at least to criminalize it, dovetail with, with the, what Congress as a whole is attempting to do right now, which is pass some sort of bill that includes uh, criminalization. Um, but I do want to say one other thing, which is why why the Mexican population is targeted is because this also dovetails with economic interest, in my opinion. Um, the fact that Mexican workers play such a pivotal role um, in the United States, in our economy, this the idea of having uh, a workforce that's more pliable, more controllable, having less access to the means of, of you know, uh, political recourse, um, this dovetails with the, the crackdown, and so that's why, for instance, the current legislative proposal, the Hegel Martinez bill, which recently passed the Senate, and the uh, the Sensenbrenner King bill, which is the the bill that passed the House, both either contain criminal, you know, aspects of criminalization or guest worker programs, um, and so we see the the merging of economic policy with political policy in relationship, particularly. Mexican workers.
0: Well, and let's take a look at that, but I want to remind listeners that we're speaking with Justin Akers Chacon. He is the co-author of No One is Illegal, forthcoming book, uh, along with uh, Mike Davis, UCI professor, uh, as well as the author of. Just about every article in the new uh, issue, the uh, May-June issue of the International Socialist Review. Actually, that's not true. There are a lot of great articles in there, uh, as well from from other contributors. But let's let's look at the the economics of, of everything. But before we we talk about, uh, you know, the influence of corporate America, could we just dispel this myth that uh, migrants uh, or immigrants are simply living off of our "Quote unquote generous welfare system." I think it's important, you know, to to just you know put the facts out on the table and then see how, uh, you know, all of these these you know guest worker programs really serve corporate interests.
1: Okay, yeah, I mean, I I think this is something that does not get challenged in the discourse in the in the mainstream media. In fact, it, it's it's uh, a lot of our understanding of immigration and its impact on our society is driven by several um, conservative think tanks that essentially are single-issue organizations designed to stop you know, immigration, such as the Center, Center for Immigration Studies and the Federation of American Immigration Reform, which are two predominant think tanks that are um, largely anti-immigrant and dedicated to stopping immigration. Um, well, there's, a, there's a, a, a number of you know facts that are on the ground that are, are basically excluded um, you know, starting with who, who, how much immigration actually affects our nation. Um, and, for instance, um, there's a, this talk about population explosion, and what's actually happening is that most of the growth of, our, of the population is not coming from the actual increase of, of, of immigrants or undocumented crossers. Um, most growth is coming from existing populations. Um, and a big part of that is the Latino population. It's a, a fast-growing and a young population, and so there's there tends to be the blurring of uh, you know where population growth is coming from, and this reflects the fact that most of the the sort of racism that's coming out right now is directed towards Latinos specifically, not particularly undocumented Latinos um, from Mexico. Anyways, the the growth uh, the growth rate is that for every 1,000 persons added to the population each year. Um, about four are um, from uh, undocumented immigration, um, so it's a very small amount. Um, undocumented workers play a, a central role in our economy. Um, the National Academy of Sciences estimates that m- about uh, the average immigrant pays about eighteen hundred dollars more into the tax structure than takes out on a yearly basis. Um,
0: now, could there... you just just explain that because I know that this is something that that I uh, you know. Even liberals and and leftists and progressives have a hard time understanding how is it you also cite uh, on the the ISR website uh, a 1997 study by the Cato Institute certainly uh, you you know not always a, a sympathetic institute right. but uh, nevertheless they point out that immigrant households uh, pay an estimated 133 billion in direct taxes to federal state and local governments now that doesn't necessarily mean that they're they're you know, undocumented immigrants, but just for the record, for our listeners, how is it that undocumented workers contribute to the tax base?
1: Okay, well, there's a number of ways. First of all, um, because of existing immigration laws going back to 1986, um, about 75% of undocumented workers have um, social security cards, fake social security cards. Um, and this is because the 1986 law required the Immigration Reform and Control Act required employers to pr- have proof of social security cards for the people they hired, and so this spawned a fake social security card industry um, and let basically employers off the hook because all they had to do then is, is document that they had a social security card. This means about up to 75 percent, despite the, the the belief that most undocumented uh, undocumented workers are paid under the table about 75 percent, this is according to the New York Times, um, pay into Social Security. Um, and what this has amounted to is that um, each year, about 6 to $7 billion it comes into Social Security um, in the form of uh, payroll taxes that c- cannot be accounted for. Um, in fact, the uh, Social Security Administration has created something called the earnings uh, suspense file. In other words, a a separate fund for all this money coming in that they that they can't attach to a person, and that grows by several billion a year.
0: So the money, wow. get, so the money. Just to clarify, so the money gets withheld, of course, because as long as the employer sees what looks like uh, a legitimate social security card, then you've got the payroll taxes that are withheld. But when it comes to um, assigning those withhold taxes to an actual individual, the government realizes that there's this discrepancy. So that there's, I think you said six or seven billion dollars in federal taxes that can't be assigned to particular individuals.
1: Right, it's, and that's per year, six or seven billion per year. Per year. Okay. Right, and so this has created um, a huge fund, um, and there's even to show the cynicism, some Republican lawmakers um, passed a law that prohibited any future attempt to distribute this funds to uh, the undocumented people that made them. Um, there's also been discussion of using <laughs> this fund to help bolster Social Security um, in years to come. And so the, the Social Security, another $1.5 to $2 billion is accrued each year in Medicare. Um, now, if we move um, into other uh, forms of tax that undocumented people pay, uh, beginning in the 1990s, the, the uh, Internal Revenue Service recognizing that there were substantial populations of undocumented people who wanted to play by the rules, who wanted to pay their taxes, who wanted to fit into society, actually created um, a special taxpayer identification number for undocumented workers that would allow them to pay federal taxes, income taxes. And so um, since the the 1990s, um, about 2 million people per year undocumented people actually pay income taxes. And so this is also, you know, dispels the myth that that people don't pay, you know, income tax. Um, Now, because they have access to these taxpayer identification numbers, they also can buy houses. And so, for instance, in Los Angeles, a significant boom is taking place within some of the barrios there as undocumented people and migrants are, are purchasing houses because they can with these taxpayer identification numbers. So they're paying property taxes. Um, you know, all all of us, every time we make a purchase, pay sales taxes. Um, and so this is where the, tax, the taxes come from. Um, and these things are rarely discussed in terms of, of the contributions that undocumented people make. And not only that, but they reinvest the money that they make. Undocumented males, for instance, are the, the most gainfully employed populate, single population in the United States, 92 percent, it's estimated by the Pew Hispanic Center, 92 percent work. So about 80 percent of what they make goes back into the local economy. The other 20 percent tends to go to Mexico in the form of remittances.
0: And before turning to corporate America, just to dispel a couple other myths, so uh, true or false, undocumented workers are uh, taking jobs from "Quote unquote native born." I, I can't even say native born because I'm certainly not native. I mean, who is right? Um, native born workers.
1: Right. All studies. I mean, all recent studies have dispelled this idea. Um, the the um, I believe it was the Economist that did a, a survey of uh, I believe it was up to fifty economists asking them, um, you know, whether this was true or not, and the overwhelming majority said it wasn't. Um, the reality is, is that there's two, fact, two things happening right now, two separate factors taking place within the economy. One is that we have an actual declining population in terms of the, of the workforce. Um, demographic studies show that the population of the United States is, is aging dramatically, um, and it's, creating actually, it's actually creating labor shortages in many parts of the country. And so immigration has played a a necessary role in bolstering a declining workforce. On the other hand, while the overall economy is not dramatically booming, low-wage jobs are booming, are growing. In fact, they're the fastest-growing jobs that we have. Um, And these low-wage jobs are what immigrants are taking. And so, you know, like I said, um, you know, all studies show that or have, have demonstrated that Immigrants do not take jobs from people you know in the u s um, and have a negligible effect even on co- in competition with other you know poor groups or previous immigrant groups um, instead, what it's doing is it's saving our economy it's bolstering our economy um, because they're providing a necessary labor
0: okay and i want to rem- i want to encourage listeners to check out the the isr website uh, to access uh, I think it's just an online article that you have which looks at some of the myths and uh, misperceptions of uh, the whole immigration issue. But let's turn our attention now to this idea of um, the the guest worker program. we're running a little short on time. I want to thank you for staying a little longer than, uh, than I had suggested. but uh, it seems that both the Democrats and the Republicans are really pushing this idea not of amnesty, uh, but of a guest worker program. What exactly is that, and and why does corporate America love it so much?
1: Well, a guest worker program is an aberration even to the system of capitalism because it more or less uh, de- demolishes the idea of free labor, of free wage labor. It's it predicated on the idea that there be a throwaway labor force that provides necessary labor um, but denied access to the rights, uh, to basic rights, uh, democratic rights afforded to other uh, populations within the nation. And so the guest worker program is a 20th century invention, which basically said we are going to import foreign workers. Um, it was called the Bracero Program, which literally means, in Spanish it just means a, a set of arms or somebody who works with their arms. Um, the, the idea was to, to allow people to come in, um, and it was negotiated, at first, through the government. So the U.S. government actually operated as a labor contractor. Um, and it recruited, um, between 1942 and 1964, for instance, um, about four 4 million um, workers. And so they would be imported in during harvest time or during, you know, um, other uh, economic booms. Um, and they would be allowed to stay in the country um, for usually a six-month increments, and then they would be required to leave. Um, now, the reason why this was such a, 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 a negative program for the working people was that it didn't, because they weren't allowed to have the rights of citizens, they were not allowed to form unions. They were not allowed to speak out against their conditions. They were virtually under the control of their particular employer once they were distributed to employers. Um, and so this created the conditions where wages could be lowered. It created the conditions where work itself um, became degraded. And this is, you know, this is when we drive by an agricultural, you know, field when we drive by farm workers. This is why we we recognize that the, the horrific conditions that continue to exist is because wages and the conditions of work have been decimated um, due to the fact that this particular workforce has had very little. Um, ability to organize itself or to have any kind of uh, positive effect on the conditions or wages that, that they uh, encounter. And this is why Cesar Chavez and the United Farm Workers um, dedicated themselves to ending this program because until there was equal rights for farm workers, basic labor rights for farm workers, they could not build their union.
0: And so the new idea of a uh, guest worker program kind of creates this this permanent class, they, Well, it, doesn't it divide the labor movement, prevent the workers uh, on a guest worker program from joining unions and kind of keep them powerless to negotiate any conditions of their employment?
1: Absolutely. I mean, this is exactly why um, corporate America wants it. The new proposal for a guest worker program is much like the old, except the previous guest worker program was largely concentrated in agriculture. The new, guest, the new guest worker proposals would expand this sort of temporary labor um, into virtually every sector of the economy. And, yes, it would, it would, it would divide uh, these guest workers from the rest of the labor movement. It would prevent them from forming unions or joining unions, and it would once again create a system of labor by which you have this class of workers who are virtually powerless. Um, You know, and it's worth pointing out that one of the reasons that there's so much support for this program now is because the industries that are actually seeing the growth of unions, uh, overall unions have been declining precipitously for 30 years, but there are some unions that are growing, and those are unions that have immigrant workers. So, for instance, the SEIU, the Service Employees Industrial Union, is one of the fastest-growing, and over half of its membership are are, uh, immigrants. Um, Immigrants have have been one of the most dedicated and one of the most determined groups of workers in our society to form unions and and improve the conditions. And so I don't think it is a coincidence that corporate America wants to expand the guest worker program into those very industries where immigrants have provided a growth engine for unions. And that would essentially mean that if this guest worker plan passes, that would work against those de- developments, and it would undermine um, any further organization of, of immigrants in those particular industries.
0: We're speaking with Justin Akers Chacon. He is the author of uh, several articles in the new issue of International Socialist Review. He's the co-author of a forthcoming book, No One is Illegal. Could you? Uh, we're just about out of time, but could you tell us a little bit about this book?
1: Yes. The book is co-authored with Mike Davis, um, a very well-known writer. He, his part of the book is dedicated to a historical analysis of the of the vigilante movement of the anti-immigrant groups, um, you know, going back to the 19th century and bringing us all the way up to, to, to today with the Minutemen. Um, and, you know, it's really important to understand the origins of these groups so that we can speak out against them. Um, and the other part of the book is dedicated to filling in the gaps. I, I feel that this is the best way to explain it, filling in the gaps of the immigration debate that are being left out. So it covers, for instance, it talks about the origins of migration as a consequence of economic integration between the United States and Mexico, how globalization um, and economic policies themselves often originating from, you know, uh, the, the, U- the U.S. essentially are having uh, an effect on, on people in Mexico and driving, uh, driving migration. It talked about, um, you know, the, the how immigrants are affecting our society um, in a positive way. It talked about the history of, Im- of immigration policy and how immigration policy tends to reflect these historical factors such as war and economic um, recession, depression, etc. And then it talked about the new civil rights movement, something we unfortunately didn't get a lot of time to talk about, um, but it, it attempts to show how this is a new civil rights movement and how this... Um, shows the potential for turning things around in this country and improving the conditions for all workers.
0: Well, you know, one of the things that that, that is just so uh, inspiring, uh, at least for me, taking a look at uh, some movements, uh, grassroots movements over the past few years, the ones that have really inspired me are probably the uh, the Immokalee workers that uh, listeners of this program are familiar with. We've got, actually, the Taco Bell headquarters just around the corner. Um, and so we were out there on the streets interviewing the Immokalee workers when they were having their hunger strike outside the Taco Bell headquarters. Just how successful that was, and then taking a look at this new, uh, you know, civil rights movement focused on immigration. Uh, you know, there really does seem to be a a stronger energy, a greater uh, a greater vibe uh, with these issues. Um, Do you think it has something to do with the the comfort level of middle-class Americans if we're talking about the war or if we're talking about, you know, really any issue? I mean, what are some of the differences from your perspective?
1: Well, I think... That's a tough
0: question, I suppose, but... uh,
1: I think the most significant thing to recognize is that the new civil rights movement, the new immigrant rights movement, and I would also add on the new workers' rights movement, um, really, as emanating from the grassroots, um, from a population that really we have to understand as part of the working class in this country. Um, and it's, not, it's, it's emanating from an experience of working people who, while being politically marginalized in this country, have been economically essential. Um, and this is reflected in the May 1st boycott, where millions of workers basically said, hey, what happens if we stop working? What happens if we don't go to school? What happens if we don't buy things? And so that's a consciousness that I think develops from the recognition of the power that that people have in in this country. Um, And and it's also important to recognize that it's not something, as as you mentioned in your introduction, it's not something that's being directed from above by politicos. It's something that really reflects a grassroots effort. And the Democratic Party, for instance, which historically has tended to try to speak for or try to co-opt in a way to, to turn it into something that supports Democratic Party campaigns has not been the issue here, has not been successful, because primarily because of the fact that the interests of, of this movement are directly at odds with what the Democratic Party is supporting in Washington. And so I think that it's a truly grassroots movement, and it truly reflects the experience of, of working people in this country. Um, and, you know, it's something that's been building for a while, and I think it, what is being expressed by this particular movement is, you know, maybe not it's not recognized by other people, but over time it will be recognized that this is something that represents the interests of all working people. Um, the civil rights movement, for instance, you know, which began more or less in the 1950s, uh, the African-American civil rights movement was something that was considered, you know, marginal or something that was considered... You know, something that didn't affect the lives of, of other segments of society, but obviously, the, the stronger that movement became, and the more it began to speak about equality, democracy, better standards of living, etc., it inspired you know the broad section of the population to recognize that this is something in their own interest. And I think that's exactly what's going to happen over the next several years. Um, but also, it's important to recognize that this isn't something that corporate America, the Minutemen, the anti-immigrant forces. Um, that are at play are going to sit by and allow to, to operate, you know, allow to take place without being challenged. And, you know, it's not a coincidence that the Bush administration um, and the the Homeland Security has been conducting uh, large-scale raids across the country, um, you know, because, you know, there are competing interests here. And sure. this movement is going to be one in which we're going to see uh, twists and turns um, and and real challenges. And so it's going to be Really important for people who support the movement to to help contribute to it, to organize, help organize, and, and to support it any way that they can.
0: And as a final question, and I thank you for staying uh, staying with us for the hour. Uh, where does the movement go from here? I mean, how do you how do we top the the May first events and uh, the March twenty fifth in Los Angeles and uh, in Chicago and so forth?
1: Okay. Well, I think what's happening nationally is that with the passage of the Hegel-Martinez bill, it led to, originally it led to a sort of divide amongst the forces who support, you know, immigrant rights, um, but the the way that the Hegel-Martinez bill has actually been expanded, you know, the English-only, for instance, the construction of a border wall, these were elements that were initially <laughs> promoted in the Sensenbrenner bill, which provoked the massive outrage, and so the divides in the movement over the question of whether we should support some sort of compromise or not are now being you know, now being looked at, and people are beginning to to question the Hegel-Martinez bill. um, And so I think there's the potential for for people to come together to oppose this bill. Um, I think there's also significant developments within the movement, which is um, there's the formation of a national coalition um, out of May 1st that rejects the idea of compromising on the basic principles of equality, right, and supports amnesty. It's called the International Coalition for Liberty and Justice. And it's um, organizing national, uh, regional conferences across the nation, around a set of demands that basically do not compromise those principles. So, in other words, it says no um, border militarization, yes to amnesty, yes to workers' rights, um, and you know these are the things that we're fighting for.
0: And the, and this is the sentiment of uh, individuals like Nativa Lopez, correct? Exactly. And we've had
1: is a participant one of the one of the the organizers of this
0: coalition and he's he's been on our program in the past so right. it's good well we are out of time i want to thank you so much for being with us uh for the hour really a a very uh, information packed hour um for listeners who are interested in um getting a copy of this forthcoming book uh do you know when it'll be available
1: um it should be out by July 15th
0: on which press haymarket haymarket press and uh, it is the International Socialist Review. You could check it out at your local newsstands or online at, I believe it's isreview.org. Does that sound I right? Yeah. isreview.org. Uh, Justin uh, Akers, check on. Thank you so much for being with us for the hour. Thank you, Jeff. Take care. And uh, I really do want to thank him. It was a great, great uh, interview, if I do say so myself. Lots of information. Stick around. The politics of food coming up in just about two minutes, uh, taking a look at the American garden as a uh, uh, a privilege of uh, white folks, yet for poor immigrants, the garden is a bounty of culture and memory. They'll be taking a look at a new book, The Earth Knows My Name. And uh, next week on this program, Angry Black White Boy, or The Miscegenation of Macon Deternay. It's a new book by Adam Monsbach that pokes fun at race and identity politics. It's going to be a jam-packed interview, so uh, check out the book. It's called Angry Black White Boy, and uh, do tune in next week. KUCI's Justice or Just Us. Until then, this is KUCI 88.9 FM in Irvine wishing you peace.